Well, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Revelation chapter 3. We have been doing a series through the book of Revelation, uh, and we've been covering letters that were written <clears throat> to seven churches that are found in the first century. And this is the last of those seven letters. By the way, just looking ahead, uh, for the next three Sundays, we will be doing messages about Christmas. So I uh, would encourage you to come and see what the Word of God has to say about the important Christmas story. But this week, we're going to continue our series through the book of Revelation because this is such an important message to not only the people of the first century, but to people of all time. And it's a message that I think we all need to think about in terms of our own dedication to God, our own journey with God. It's a call to all of us to think seriously about how seriously we take God. See, there's a problem that we as human beings can settle into, and that problem is we can fall into this mindset of mediocrity. Now, what do I mean by that? When it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to many things, we can say, good enough. I'm not going to give this any more effort. I'm where I want to be. This is where I like. This is where I feel comfortable. So I'm not really going to pursue God, or I'm not going to pursue my job, or I'm not going to pursue this relationship. I'm going to settle in. What God is calling us to in this passage of Scripture is quite a different attitude to leave behind that mindset of mediocrity and to look to passionately pursuing a deeper relationship with God. And I want us to think through this passage of Scripture together as to why that's important. Now, in several of the letters that we've seen so far, we've seen a message that's directed to the church, and then there are identifying markers about who Christ is and what Christ does. And this letter starts with no difference in that. What we find, though, is a statement about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Now, what we mean by preeminence is this, that he is far above all because he is God. Jesus Christ is the God who became man. We saw that celebrated this morning, didn't we? In that beautiful program that the kids put on. He is God who took on human flesh, who added to his deity humanity. And he came to live among us. And what we can do, especially around Christmas time, is put Jesus in a place to where we feel comfortable with him. Sometimes we think about the baby in the manger and we talk about baby Jesus and that's a very comfortable way to view Jesus, isn't it? But what we really need to see according to God's word is there's so much more to Jesus than just that baby in the manger. Jesus is above all. He is God. And that's brought out by the way Jesus describes himself in this text. So look at Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. And look at what the scripture says. To the angel at the church of Laodicea write the words of the amen. Now we're going to take that first identifying marker of who Jesus is. And we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. When the scripture says he is the amen, what does he mean? Well, amen is a rather interesting word. It's directly from the text of the Old Testament. And as you know, the Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. And the word amen is often translated truth. As a matter of fact, 
The passage that probably relates to this is found in the Old Testament, which has a lot of allusions to who Christ is, a lot of discussions about this God-man, Jesus Christ. And hundreds of years before Christ was born, this verse was written, and it says this, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now, why did I bring out this verse? In this passage, the word truth, as it appears both times in the original Hebrew, is the word amen. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for truth is brought into many languages where when we look upon something and we say, yes, that's right, that's it, that's telling it like it is, what do we say? We say, amen. It's like the final word. And really, this is what Jesus is saying in this text. Jesus is saying, I am the final word. Jesus is saying that I need to be the amen in each life. What that means is, rather than looking for meaning and hope and anything else in other things, we find it in Jesus Christ. That's the message of this passage of Scripture. I am the amen. Something else. Jesus also says in this text, as we continue in it, that he is the faithful and true witness now, when we look in Scripture, we find that Jesus is the one who ultimately witnesses to who the Father is, and He shares with us important truths about the Father. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God used to speak to people through the prophets, like those who wrote the Old Testament. But then it goes on in the second verse and says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Of course, son refers to Jesus. And it says this, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So when Jesus says in this text that he is the faithful and true witness, he is saying that he is the ultimate communication from God about God. He tells us everything that we need to know. But there's more to it than even that. Jesus, as a faithful witness, is able to see into the very core of who we are. He sees past the smoke screens. He sees past what we present to everyone else. He sees right into who we are. And when he testifies about us, he testifies the truth. This is who Jesus is. Final designation in this part of the passage is that he is the beginning, the powerful creator and sovereign God. When we look in Scripture, the idea that God created through Jesus Christ abounds. Many, many passages of Scripture talk about how God created through Him, but probably none is any clearer than just a very simple, short statement that the same author of Revelation, John, wrote. John, in his gospel, shared with us 
that Jesus is the one through whom God made everything. Look at what this says. All things were made through him, and without him was, nothing, was not anything made that was made. So it is through Jesus that God has created everything. So why is Jesus identifying himself as the amen, as the perfect witness, as the God of creation who is sovereignly in charge of everything, over everything as the creator? Why is he doing that? Because the people that he's writing to in this letter had forgotten who Jesus is. Isn't it easy for us to become distracted to take our eyes off of who Jesus is. This is what was going on in the church at Laodicea. And I think if we open our hearts to this passage, we'll see that this is what can go on with many of us if we are not careful about how we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So let's look at what Jesus says to these people. He begins to share with them a challenge about their preference to be lukewarm and how that's unacceptable to God. So let's talk about that from this text. Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, these are some intense words, aren't they? You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Because of that, I want to spew you out of your mouth. In order to really understand what Jesus is talking about in this text, we have to look at Laodicea. Laodicea was a city that was what is in now modern-day Turkey. And they had no source of water that they could get for themselves. So many of you have seen pictures of the Roman aqueducts those mechanisms that the Romans designed to bring water from a distance. There were large stone arches. And from about 10 miles away in two directions, the people of Laodicea received water from a place called Heropolis, which was in the mountains. So it was kind of a downhill glide for the water to get to Laodicea. And the other place was Colossae, again, about 10 miles away. Well, guess what happens to that water in an arid region where it goes down an aqueduct for about 10 miles. The aqueducts were constructed out of stone, and that would flavor the water, not necessarily in the way that we would like to have water flavored. It tasted like rock, you know? The, the, the minerals um, from, from the rock and some of the off-putting flavors that can be in rock was there. And then also think about this. If you've ever done any work with ponds or with waterways or things like that, algae builds up, right? Have you ever had water that tastes like algae? It's nasty when it's cold. It's awful when it's lukewarm. This is a picture of what was going on as far as the water in Laodicea. And Jesus was using an illustration to communicate to the people of Laodicea something very important. Laodicea was 10 miles from the source for each of those. So here's the idea. If you were to go to Heropolis or if you were to go to Colossae and you were to get water straight from the spring, guess what? It was delicious. It was pure. It was cold. It was refreshing. But the further you got away from the source, the more unpalatable the water became. 
to where by the time it reaches Laodicea, you go to where the aqueduct comes in and you take a drink of the water and it's lukewarm by this time and it's flavored by this time and you'd put it in your mouth and you'd spit it out. It was nasty because it was too far from the source. I think there's a message there for all of us, don't you? The further I get away from the amen, from the faithful and true witness, the further I get away from the one who is the creator of everything, the more lukewarm and disgusting spiritually I become. Now, God loves us. He wants a relationship with us. But if I'm far away from him, if I'm distracted by the things of this world and the distractions of this world, and I've lost connection with the source, I'm no longer that life-giving, wonderful, refreshing water. I've become lukewarm. It's a message to Christians that they need to get back to the source, be close to God. But it's also a message to those who have never come into that relationship with God, who have never gone to the original source, that it's there for them if they'll open their hearts and receive what God freely gives through Jesus, the living water that Jesus is. Now, the text goes on. And look as we continue in what Jesus has to say after identifying the problem in the church in verses 15 and 16, we come to verse 17. And what we find is that the people have a very distorted view of themselves. Look at what it says in this text. The people, as far as their assessment of themselves, said this, for you say, speaking of the people in Laodicea, I am rich... I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, the first part of this verse is the self-awareness or lack thereof that the people of Laodicea have. Have you ever seen the Febreze commercial where people are nose-blind to certain odors, right? You go in the kids' room, and there are gym socks laying all over the floor and sweats and nasty-smelling stuff, and he's just in there happy as a lark, and the mom walks in, and she's like, ugh. You know, he's nose blind. Well, you know, we can become nose blind to where we are spiritually. We can come to the place to where we look and we say, I'm fine. I don't have a problem. I am in good shape. I've got this. That's the idea that the people at Laodicea had in assessing themselves. And basically what they were saying is this. Look. I don't have a problem because, first of all, I'm rich. You know, when you look at the city of Laodicea, it was a city that was known for its trade. It was right at the intersection of three of the major trade routes of the ancient world. So if anybody was going to do trade, they had to go through Laodicea, and as a result, they were wealthy. It was a boom town. And there are times where we can confuse the material wealth that we experience with the importance of really what is wealth indeed, a relationship with God. We can confuse the material blessings that we receive with spiritual blessings. 
And then we feel that we have no need of God. If we do need Him, we like to call on Him, but then as soon as He helps us, we're back to ignoring Him again because we're rich. We have everything that we need. People at Laodicea did not understand themselves, and I can't help but think that often in a world and in a country like ours, we can fall into the same trap, can't we? I'll tell you, I've traveled to India and I've traveled to Kenya, and I saw Christians in these churches that made nothing. They had the clothes on their back and hopefully a shelter over their heads, but the shelters were often lean-tos, poverty that we can't even imagine in our country. And yet, you know what I saw? A contentment and a joy and a thankfulness as they focused on God. Material wealth is no substitute for God, and yet many people do that. We as believers need to understand that God needs to be our focus. We should never say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything. Whether we realize it or not, we need God. And we need Him in a profound way. And we're being unrealistic and short-sighted if we say to ourselves, I've got this. We need God. After this self-delusional identification of themselves, look at what the Scripture goes on to say. Jesus' assessment follows the assessment that the people had of themselves in verse 17. And he says this, they are not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, let's look at these words that Jesus uses to describe these ones who have just said, I'm rich, I'm profitable, I don't need anything. Jesus is saying, first of all, they're wretched. And this word wretched is a word that is used in Scripture often to describe people who are captured by sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, said this, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, Paul's really struggling with sin. He doesn't want to sin, but he's bound by it. And then he asks this question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Who gives me victory over these things? And I'm going to give you one guess who Paul identifies as the solution to his wretchedness, Jesus Christ. So the people at Laodicea needed to get their eyes off of themselves, and they needed to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were pitiable. The word pitiable carries with it worthy of pity. Now, in order to view myself as worthy of pity, I have to let pride go. Many of us don't view ourselves as pitiable because that would show weakness. I want people to view me as someone who has it all together and who is the answer man rather than the one who needs an answer. God invites us to humble ourselves before Him, recognize our need, and turn to Him. Not being the go-to person that has to always have the answer, but the person humble enough to turn to the one who is the answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than pursuing the wealth 
and the prosperity that these people were pursuing. They were blind and they were naked spiritually. They couldn't see where they were, what their need was, or who it is that can supply that need. And there are many like that in the world today. We go through life with spiritual blinders on, and we're not looking to our need. We're not looking and recognizing that we need to depend upon the source, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking to other things. If it's wealth that captures our thinking, Jesus gave us perspective in this when Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his life? Jesus offers life. The best that the world can offer is a very temporary fix for the things that we're looking to. So we fall into this spiritual blindness and nakedness. We fall into sin, and shame. We're invited in Scripture to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the person we're to focus on. This is the person that we are to depend on rather than ourselves. So Jesus shares with us some proactive steps to getting right with God. Let's look at this text and see what he says. Verse 18, Jesus speaking says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've seen that often very poetic language is used, but it's communicating a very important literal truth. And what Jesus is saying to the people at Laodicea is basically this. Stop looking to the gold that you're making through your trade and through your business and start looking to God's gold, the real gold. What is that? The scripture describes our faith as something that is like gold. The apostle Peter said this, and this You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you catch what Peter is saying in this text? The things that captivate our minds are temporary. Say I live a hundred years. Great. Say I amass a fortune. Wonderful. What happens at the end of that life? What becomes of that long life and that huge, huge fortune that I've amassed? It's gone. It's been said there are no U-Hauls on hearses. You can't take it with you. That's the idea. What really lasts are the things that I focus on as far as God. And yet, as human beings, we're so distracted by the immediate and by the things that are material and shiny and appealing to the eye that we forget who God is. We need to seek the faith that is like God. Gold, refined by difficulty, refined by the fire, but developed into a strength 
that gives us the ability to face the biggest of hurdles. This is what God invites us to do. Something else. In this text, he tells them to put on white garments. Now, in Laodicea, they were known for their textiles. And they were often kind of the fashionistas of their day. They would walk around in the finest clothes, and they took a lot of pride in what they were able to produce. But what Jesus is saying to them is this, clothes go out of style, and they wear out, right? They don't last long. Jesus offers a clothing that is eternal, and that clothing is his righteousness. We as followers of Jesus Christ want to put on the white garments that Jesus has. Stop going around saying, I have enough righteousness in myself, but looking and saying, I have a need. I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I need him to clothe me in these pure and white garments. Again, this is a symbolic passage, and it's sharing with us by describing white garments the purity and the cleanness that we can have in Christ Jesus. We need to strive toward that. We need to humble ourselves before God, recognizing our need and reaching out to take that for ourselves. The Apostle Paul was a person, again, who prided himself before he found Jesus in his own righteousness. But when he came face to face with his need, recognized his sin, and received Jesus Christ as his Savior, the one who delivers him from sin and separation from God, he said these words, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There are two approaches to right relationship with God. One is, I will be good enough and hopefully my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and somehow God will receive me. That was Paul's approach before he found what it is to trust in Christ as his hope for relationship with the Father. The other approach is faith. I know that I am wretched, I know that I am pitiable, I know that I am poor, I know that I am naked, I know that I need God to deliver me from all of this. So Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin so that I could know him. And I will count on his right life, perfect life, sinless life, that was sacrificed for me to bring forgiveness and a right relationship with the Father. This is what Jesus promises in this text to these people. And this is what they needed to access. Stop going it alone. Stop saying, I will depend on myself. Start depending on God, something else. In addition to the white clothing that Jesus talks about their need to have so that he could cover the shame of their nakedness, he promises them salve for their eyes. In the arid region in which... The Bible was written, that dry climate wreaks havoc with the eyes. And so the people in Laodicea developed a salve. And that salve was a remedy for the dry eyes that many of the people of that time suffered with. 
Jesus is saying to the people at Laodicea, he is the only salve to anoint the eyes. And he's not talking about the physical eyes, but I think in this text, the spiritual eyes. If you really want to see what's going on spiritually, focus on Jesus. Stop depending on yourself. Start depending on him. And then finally, he talks about their need to have their nakedness clothed. Nakedness in the ancient Near East was a definite statement of shame. Even today, as you look at people in the Middle East, they cover themselves, correct? Not much of their body is exposed because they view nakedness as shame. In the scripture, what we find is this, that sin is shame before God. But in Jesus Christ, that shame can be covered, taken away in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what he's calling not only the people of Laodicea, but the people of all ages to come to, to come to God and to experience this kind of forgiveness and right relationship with Him. He's calling us to pursue repentance. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, the Scripture tells them, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What he's saying to the people of Laodicea is this, I'm not going to allow you to continue down this path. I will put things in your path that will cause you to give me your undivided attention. But rather than having to go through that, simply repent and do so with zeal. Now, what do we mean by that? Repentance is changing your outlook and changing your behavior. The word repent actually means to change the mind. And so what he's saying to the people in Laodicea is this. Stop viewing yourself as having it all together, having no needs, not paying any attention to who Jesus is. Start looking at who Jesus is and adjust your thought processes and your behavior accordingly. That's the idea of repentance. Stop doing what you're doing and do something else. Change your course. Change your path. But he says that they're to do this repentance with zeal. In other words, don't give me a lukewarm repentance. Yeah, you know, some of these, one of these days, I, I really ought to get around to that. One of these days, I'm, I'm going to do that, just not now. What zeal does is, this should have been done yesterday, and I'm going to get right on this, and I mean I'm getting right on this. That's the idea of what the people at Laodicea needed to do. They needed to turn to God in that way. Final part of the passage. Verses 20 through 22 talk about promises to those who repent. And it begins with the 20th verse where Jesus promises a personal and intimate fellowship with him. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, often this passage of Scripture has been applied to evangelism where it's talking about the door of the heart, but I don't believe that's what this text is talking about. While it's true that God intimately wants to have a relationship with us, this passage isn't directed toward just anybody. It's directed to the church. And what he's saying to the church is this, you have pushed me out of the church, and I'm on the outside... 
and I'm knocking on the door of the church wanting back in. Think about the love of Jesus Christ to offer forgiveness and a closeness with him by knocking on the door like a gentleman and inviting us to let him in as a church, not as believers. Remember, the church is Christ's church. How in the world did he wind up on the outside? By the church looking to their own things, not recognizing Christ for who he is, and systematically excluding him from the life of the church. Oh, they'll talk about him. They'll sing about him. But in yielding to who he is and what he has for us, we exclude him. So it's an awful picture. The Savior of the church, the one who died on the cross and shed his blood for our sin, standing on the outside saying, I want to come in and fellowship with you. I want to have a closeness with you, an intimacy with you. Will you open the door? To me, this is one of the most convicting letters that we find in the seven letters to the seven churches. The heart of God is to know us, to have intimate fellowship with us. But that doesn't happen when we exclude God from our lives, from our focus, from what is truly our priority system. We need to make God the focal point of that priority system and not something else. Something else. Jesus says we are privileged to reign with him. So what happens when I repent and invite Christ back in? The scripture says in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The scripture shares with us that when we have a personal relationship with God, when we are in Christ, as the scripture refers to it, that closeness of that relationship, we look forward to the future. When Jesus Christ is king, we will reign with him. The idea of the throne is a picture of authority, reigning. And what the scripture actually teaches us as believers is this. Jesus Christ reigns and will reign. But when I am in Christ, when I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I have committed my heart to him, and I am seeking to follow him, I reign with Christ. Now, where do I get that? The book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says the following. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, look at this, made us alive together with Christ by grace. In other words, God giving you something that you have not earned, but that he freely gives. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you catch that? We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, positionally, as far as where I stand with Christ. But what the word of God teaches is 
our experience will catch up with our position. My position is seated with Christ because I am in Him, but my experience will be I will reign with Christ when He reigns on this earth. That's the teaching of Scripture. The passage goes on to say, in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's the idea. I set aside the allure of the things of this world right here and right now for the longer-term benefits that I see in glory, in eternity, in heaven. It's so easy for us to look at the baubles, to look at the things of this world that are just flashes in the pan, and to forget what really lasts and what's really important. This passage of Scripture invites us to remember to recognize our need, to turn to Christ, to respond. I would encourage you this morning, as you think through this passage of Scripture, go home and read it again. Think about what's being communicated. Think about what was said this morning. And do some serious self-evaluation. Not like the people of Laodicea who said, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, and I have need of nothing but truly taking stock of your life and where it is and where you are in relationship with God. Whether you have found God as Savior or not, He wants a relationship with you. He has that door that He will come through and establish fellowship and relationship with you if you open your heart to Him. In church, If you have found that relationship with Christ, have you become lukewarm? Have you gotten too far from the source? Have you come to the place to where you've forgotten what you've found in Christ and you've allowed distractions to move you toward other things? God wants us to live as those who are going to reign with Christ as those who have opened the door to him for close and intimate fellowship. I tell you, there's no greater joy than a close walk with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the call that it gives to us all to live for Jesus. Let us not supplant that desire to know him and walk with him with the distractions of this world. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.